Before we start this episode, which discusses Derek Poupard's hoof casting material along with Derek and Dr. O'Grady's approach to casting, I want to remind everyone that Derek, along with Stuart Muir, Paige Poss, Yogi Sharp, and Black Brook Veterinary Services, will be joining us in Ipswich, Massachusetts for a clinic in April 2022. We will get a chance to practice the casting methods mentioned in this episode hands-on. There are still a few spots left, so go to thehumblehoof.com shop to see options for registering. We are fortunate to partner with the NAEP for this event. To learn more about the NAEP or to see other continuing education opportunities available, visit the NEAEP.com. Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. I first read some of Dr. Stephen O'Grady's research and materials in 2014 when my gelding was diagnosed with navicular disease. I read a lot about it on his podiatry website, and it was clear he had a great understanding of the hoof. Last year, I interviewed Derek Poupard about barefoot race training, hoof casting, and 3D printed pads, and Dr. O'Grady's name came up again. I had the opportunity to attend a casting clinic with Dr. O'Grady in August 2021 and took the chance to ask if he would be on the podcast discussing casting and barefoot performance horses. Can you tell us a little bit about your veterinary journey and how you became interested in podiatry? Okay, it may be boring. Oh, that's fine. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) As long as it's fine. Okay. It goes back a while, as you you probably know. Anyway, I was uh, one of those bad guys or bear problem kids. I quit school when I was in ninth grade. You know, I didn't think school was going to teach me anything. You know, I knew it all. And I wanted to go into into the trades. At that particular, we came from a very poor family. And I wanted to do something where, you know, I made, you know, I made a, a better living than, than maybe what I was used to. I became a, a diesel mechanic. I had my own landscaping business when I was 19 or whatever. But I always really enjoyed horses. So I wanted something that I could be good at. One that would be that... Um, you could, you could sort of go up the ladder with, something I could earn a good living with, something would be my own business. So, And I always had a big interest in horses, so I chose, well, you know, let's, let's look at farriery. So I got a job with the local farrier uh, down the corner. You know, he was a farrier, blacksmith, you know, fix your car tires, whatever. And in the interim, I met a fellow who belonged to a practice that was very well known. He had broken his leg and we got to be friends. And he said, listen, we've been thinking about taking on a third person. And he said, I'm going to recommend you to the boss. So anyway, one thing led to another. He did. I went up and met him I'm back a second time. And he said, okay, he said, I'm going to offer you a job. But anyway, I worked my way up. I did my three-year apprenticeship with him, which is basically unheard of now. Then I worked for another year to sort of pay him back, you know, for the opportunity I had. And then I went to New Bolton Center for a year and worked under a man there by the name of Jack Anderson. So I had basically five years under my belt before I did horses on my own. We were doing horses on the weekend and maybe I'd do a horse after work or something like that. So this is what led me into my own business. So I practiced five or six years as a farrier. I had a, had a farrier working for me and 
not soon after I went in business, I decided, well, you know, I don't know how much further I can take the salary part, and I, I want to know more. So we were always too poor to go to veterinary school. I didn't have the marks. I didn't go to high school. So I figured, well, okay, what am I going to do with extra time? So I went back to school. First, I went into Temple University, and I got a uh, real high school diploma. And then where do you start? I did a year at the community college. I transferred from there to Westchester College for a year. And then and I think, well, this is going pretty good. So then I applied to a couple bigger schools. And one I applied to almost as joke was Harvard College in Pennsylvania, you know, the Harvard of Pennsylvania. And they offered me admission. And I figured if I didn't take it, I would be sorry. If I did take it, I would be sorry because I couldn't work and go to school there. Well, anyway, I did work and I did go to school there and I finished Harvard College. And there was no highs on my record, but, you know, there was no fails either. So we did pretty good there. Then, you know, I applied to veterinary school. And I got turned down the first year. Back at that time, you could only apply to the school in your state. So now you can apply to school in every state. And I got turned down. I was even doing the dean's driving courses, showing them. So one of my clients who was a surgeon at, at Penn suggested, well, he said, if you're so impatient, why don't you go apply to South Africa? He said, we've had their interns and residents. They've been the best in the world. Anyway, I came home on a Friday night and my friend said, well, you know, you're going to South Africa tomorrow morning. And, you know, I'd never been, I don't think I'd been on an airplane. So anyway, I went to South Africa and I met with the dean and I met with the provost. And they said, well, right now we have six foreign seats. Two of them go to Rhodesia. So that leaves four foreign seats. And right now we have over 200 applicants for those four seats. So I came home and I figured, well, you know, I'll tell everybody I've been to South Africa and, you know, the other side of the world. And about six weeks later, I got to tell Rand I was accepted. So then you have to make up your mind. Well, do I leave what I have? I just built a house. I had a good practice. I had people working for me. Uh, you know, I had a, a really good life for a young person. So I made the decision to go. And their school year starts in January because the seasons are reversed. And in March of that year, I got a notice that I had been accepted at Penn. <laughs> I thought, oh, what do I do now? Well, I had already settled in. I enjoyed it there. So I, I stayed and I finished school there. It was an absolutely wonderful education. When I finished, I did an internship at, the, at a big hospital in Cape Town, South Africa. Great experience. Came back and did a second internship at a Georgetown Equine Hospital in Charlottesville, Virginia. I was there for seven or eight years, and then I opened my own practice, and the rest is history. That's amazing. So was it in South Africa that you met Derek? Yes. Wow, I didn't know that. I assumed that you had just kind of crossed paths uh, just in the podiatry world. No, I, I had met him there when I was in, in school, but then there were other crazy parts of my life, and I... I got a bit burnt out in, in practice, so I decided, well, I always liked South Africa. I was going to return. So in 93, I returned to South Africa, and Derek was waiting at the, at the doorstep. So we worked together for two years. I was there when they changed from apartheid, and for another year afterwards, it just wasn't safe. So we decided to return. At the same time, I sponsored Derek to come to the States. 
when he came to the States, he worked with me. I set up his practice. And, you know, he's got a personality to beat the band. And, you know, his practice, plus the ability to do the work properly, being taught properly, you know, he just took off. He's, you know, head of the uh, Sheik's racing department there. If you just look at the success they've had with the Sheik's horses, and most of them are training barefoot or with casts, they're only shod the day of the race because they're, uh, you know, because it's the rules. And then as soon as they're done racing, the shoes are pulled again and they go back to training. He has done a lot for barefoot as well, you know, in that regard. The new casting method, uh, and I wish I didn't have to say this, but he developed it. I didn't. <laughs> and I feel a little inferior for not thinking of something so simple. Because I've always been against foot casts the way they were because they're too constricted. You know, and it makes so much sense the way he takes the, the polymer plantar section of the cast out. Uh, it just, it's amazing. The results I've had are incredible. I'm going to present this at uh, AEP this year. So it'll be published as well. Oh, that's fantastic. It's wonderful. And um, I, I recently attended a clinic in August that you gave where we learned about that hoof casting method for barefoot transition. And it was awesome. I loved that we were all able to do some hands-on casting. I have never casted that way. And I think it's, it's a great idea. Oh, it's phenomenal. The more you do it, the more you become proficient with it, the more you understand what you can do with it. You know, I, I've devised different ways to repair toe cracks. Now, the few that I've done since casting like this, I wouldn't do it any other way. And the results are spectacular. It could be used on half the foot for quarter cracks. It's just, again, if you, want, if you have a horse with white line disease, you know, you want to um, preserve the margin of the, of the hoof capsule and open the area up, put the hoof cast on, and then, then create a window in your cast. It's just, you're only limited by your imagination. Yeah. Sorry if I'm off on a tangent there. No, this is great. When I spoke with Dr. O'Grady, we actually started by discussing the casting process and how he approaches these cases. I went back and swapped the order of our conversation so you can hear some of the benefits of this process before hearing the detailed step-by-step of how to do it. There's a lot of information here, so for the process, a pen and paper might be handy. Yeah, and I was hoping that maybe you could give some examples of changes that you see in the hoof itself in a round or a few rounds of casts. Yeah, well, yeah, that, that leads into a couple other things. What you're basically doing, the hoof wall improves by adaptation or being stimulated. For example, if we take a hoof wall that is fairly thin, okay, let's call it a thin-walled horse, if there is such a thing. Now, let's put some cast around. Okay, when the foot lands on the ground, you don't have a lot of mass there, so your stimulation is going to be over a smaller surface area. Now, let's put a couple wraps of cast around that foot, two, three, however you want to do. Now, let's fold it underneath, half inch, Quarter, three quarters of an inch, something like that. Now, put the horse's foot on the ground. Look at the surface area that you've increased, not only on the bottom of the horse's foot, but also on the wall. In other words, it's thicker. The more mass you have, the more stimulation to strengthen, to produce tissue is placed on the hoof wall. And no matter whether 
it's thinner or thick, the stimulation is going to the coronary band because that's your growth center. That's being stimulated by, by the cast, by, by changing these. You can change the heels because, you know, they're not, they're not abrading against the shoe. Remember when the horse is barefoot, you know, the foot is being worn by friction rather than the way it is with, with the shoe on. So all these things enhance the growth. Also, once you have the shoe off and you have a cast on, you're not putting the load on the periphery. So you're also using the sole and the sole that is next to the sole wall junction, which is able to accept a little bit of weight. You're also using that in weight bearing. So you're getting the whole bottom of the foot to adapt, to strengthen, and to improve the tissue. Make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I've seen similar things, so I think it's really great. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, and so another thing that I loved at the clinic that I went to was that you showed some examples of horses that you've worked on that are now competing either barefoot or casted. And do you think that this is feasible for, uh, a, you know, many horses to be, you know, transitioned to barefoot or transitioned to casted and continue competing? Okay, well, there's a few problems going on. And one of the things is that, you know, the barefoot, and I am a big barefoot proponent, as I said before, because the foot with good structures is better at accepting weight. It's better at dissipating energy. It's better at absorbing concussion when all the structures are being used. Because remember, when you put a shoe on, you're using the periphery of the foot, the wall. You're creating an interface between the horse's foot and the ground. Therefore, what's happened to all those other tissues, which are well above the ground? You know, they're, they're sort of being idle. They're not being stimulated. They're not being used. You know the old adage, you don't use it, you lose it. So this is where barefoot is wonderful if you can do it. What happened was, or what ha is happening is, and I did a, I did a, podcast for you know I'm a, I'm a member of uh, the practice in Palm Beach Equine Clinic and I also you know I did something for the Horse Journal and you know a lot of people uh, a lot of clients um, you know saw this and they saw the all the palava with the uh, Swedish horses they did go barefoot they did wonderful they started going barefoot because their farriers every time they put shoes on they couldn't ride the horses so they figured we're going to use the horses barefoot and you know, they just work their way into it with a few, you know, alterations. But what's happening, Alicia, is that, that people see this, they tell their farrier, I said, okay, you know, I want to try my horse barefoot. Well, you'll be sorry. So they take the shoes off, they trim the feet, like they're going to put shoes on, they round that little sharp edge off, and three days later, the horse can't walk. And then the, the client says, oh, man, this is not a good idea. Let's put those shoes back on. Maybe the, the farrier is protecting himself. I don't know. I published a paper on 70 horses. I only use horses that I have records on that I could produce if somebody questions it or whatever. I published the paper on my website in 2017, I think, on 70 horses we had managed barefoot. And one of the big points of that is that you have to think your way through the horse being barefoot. Number two you have to get out of the modality of, okay, let's trim these feet. You don't trim them anymore. You put your knife away. You put your knife in a shelf. You don't use it again. You don't get near the foot with a knife. And you shape the foot instead of trimming. 
again, probably, you know, long before you were around, when I was learning the trade, we developed a way to trim mares. We did a lot of mares in our practice. And these mares would be, be heavy pregnant. And, you know, the more pregnant they got, the flatter their feet became. And, and you know, they started becoming sore. So we developed a way to trim these horses. We called it shaping instead of trimming. Same thing I do now 50 years later, uh, the, way we, the way I learned there. What we do there is we don't touch the bottom of the foot. And what we do is we just use a rasp for nippers, and we use the nippers on the outer side of the sole wall junction, white line, whatever, it's actually sole wall junction. And we use the nippers in a vertical direction. And when you're using these properly in a vertical direction, if we're going to use nippers, we start at the heel quarter, and then we go around to the opposite heel quarter. And when you're finished, you'll have a beautiful white ring around the horse's foot. This creates almost a mound of hoof wall that you have that's going to, going to hit the ground. Once you have reduced the wall to where you want, if you want to just go a little harder on a vertical direction, if you want to bring the wall in, that leaves you with a sharp edge around there. So we take the rasp, the smooth edge, and we put it against the hoof wall and just go almost around the foot, but we use the hoof wall as a, as a guide and we just sort of make passes with the rasp in, you know, in an upward direction to eliminate that sharp area. So what we end up with is a nice, perfect, rounded area. If I don't have a whole lot of hoof wall to, to remove, I just use a rasp. And a lot of my farm managers, they, they shape the, the feet themselves. I taught them all, I don't need to do this and charge them a lot of money. They do them usually every three weeks. Never touch them with a knife. They just shape the feet with uh, the way I've taught them with a rasp. You saw the pictures of the horses jumping. Two horses later from that same barn of one Grand Prix. Wow. One horse just had his shoe off for three weeks. Wow. And I'll send you that video if you like. The thing of it is, just to digress again a little bit, because I keep thinking about things. If you have a horse that does not have good structures of its foot, in other words, ones that you can improve, you're going to battle. Okay, and they not, might not be a candidate for a competition horse. If you have a horse with a marked distortion, you know, one with collapsed heels or a club foot or a severe sheared heel, those you have to change the distortion a bit. You can do that barefoot before you get into, in other words, let's okay, now we're going to go forward with training the horse and jumping the horse and that sort of thing. Okay, but you need to have fairly good hoof structures or structures that can be improved it will strengthen adapt you know get better integrity better mass if we going to take the shoes off we like to do it in when you get close to a reset in other words uh, after a horse is shy maybe three weeks is a is a good time for me what i do is i take the shoes off i take a wire brush clean up the foot depending on the hoof growth i may take the nippers or i may just use a rasp on an angle, not horizontal, horizontal to trim because you want a flat surface. On an angle because I want to, I, I think I showed you guys that at that meeting. Yes. Um, because you, at an angle, you want to preserve, you want to create a mound around the perimeter of the hook wall. That's what I do. And then, you know, we'll let these, depending on how they walk away, 
you know, we might walk them for a couple days. We might send them uh, through the country with a rider. They're going to be a little uncomfortable on the rocks or the stones until those tissues adapt. So we might send them through a, out through the country, you know, for a walk, maybe a little trot on a straightaway for, you know, a couple of weeks, week two, depending on, on the foot, how they hook as how the structures look or that. We turn them out at the same time. We usually put them in a smaller paddock so they don't really get, get running a lot. I very rarely use any medicine, in other words, to transition them. you got to remember, and I'm not bragging, but, but most of the horses I work on are upper-level horses. So they, they have good horsemen there, and they have good managers. So these guys, they're pretty dead. Dog, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off with this horse. He's doing pretty good. And the synthetic surfaces all these people have in their indoor rings or outdoor rings, they're, they're very conducive for this kind of thing. When in the interim, you know, I want the horses walking on not hard surface. I want them walking on firm surface. Does that make sense? Because I want the feet to continually be strengthening, continually be adapting. Because when you have shoes on, you're loading the periphery of the foot. Once you take those shoes off, you're loading the whole foot. And so you're transferring some of the load from the wall to the sole, which needs a little time to strengthen up, become thicker, you know, change the microscopic part of it, you know, that kind of thing. If you have a horse that, you know, he doesn't have the greatest feet, but, you know, we, uh, boy, he'd really be better with the shoes off for a while, or, you know, he's got cracks in his feet, you know, in some of these horses. If they have fairly good structures with the heels, these are the horses I'll cast. And uh, I'll put them in a cast. I'll do the same exact thing. So you're adding bulk. To the hoof wall, you're stabilizing the hoof wall, but you're not changing the physiology of the bottom of the foot or that ability of that foot to strengthen, to adapt, you know, to to become stronger, to you know, develop better tissue, change the integrity of the structures, that sort of thing. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I was actually wondering if we could even back up a little bit and if you could talk a little bit about the process that you do for the casting so people know where we're coming from. Sure. You know, whether you're casting a foot or putting a shoe on or putting a wooden shoe on, which I do a lot of, you got to remember, it's the trim is so important. One of my mentors, Dr. Andy Parks, one of his quotes is, it's the trim, stupid. Whatever you're doing with the horse's foot, it, it starts with the trim. This is what's changing your conformation. This is what's changing hoof mechanics. I never use the word balance because I don't know what it means. Then when you put a cast on or a shoe or whatever, what you're basically doing is preserving and or modifying your trim. In other words, if you need a little bit more ground surface or you need a little bit more height at the heel or, or whatever. So it has to start with the trim. And we could talk about the trim there because that's a little different than if you were going to put shoes on. But yeah. once we have done the trim, we're going to take and you don't have to keep grind the foot or anything like that. But in order to hold your cast on, you need to have two anchor points, just like a shoe or if you're going to do di direct gluing, anything like that. So we take a rasp and we clean up with the rasp down to clean, solid, you know, outer hook wall with all the periope or the shiny material removed. That area is going to form our two anchor points. Next, we take a, I use a sanding block. They're medium sanding blocks. I get them in 
a six-pack at, at Home Depot or Lowe's with the foot on the stand from the point at the heel where we created a almost a square piece from the end of the heel, maybe forward an inch, inch and a half. I'll take the sanding block and I'll sand the rest of the outer hook wall. I'm just sanding it to the point where I take the shine off it. Nothing more. I'm not sure I even take all the purry off wall, but I sand the whole horn because we're going to put a little bit of acrylic on there. Now, when you're getting ready to put your cast on, you want to take and have everything together in one spot. You're going to need your cast. You're going to need some acrylic. I use the, there's a lot of different brands. I don't advertise anything. I personally use Equilox because uh, I've been with them so long. I, uh, I reference them in my papers. And I use the tubs, whether it's an ounce or two ounces, and I use an ounce. Never use any more. Once you're ready, you have all your material out. I'll take the foot, and again, I think it's important to put it on a stand so you can see what you're doing. Don't put your hoof stand too high because it makes the horse a little bit uncomfortable. So put it down where, you know, the horse is comfortable, you're comfortable, where you can work. You mix up your acrylic, and with a tongue depressor, I'll take a, you know, a very substantial dab, and I'll put it at each heel. In other words, focally, where I've cleaned that area down to good, solid outer horn. From there, uh, once I've done that, I'll take acrylic. And sometimes I take my fingers, sometimes I take a thumb depressor, and I just put it sparingly on the outer hook wall, starting about a half inch to three quarters below the coronet. Okay, because I don't want anything up on, on the coronet, and you'll see why afterwards. So, and you go around from perimeter to perimeter. From there, uh, depending on the size foot, I'll use either two-inch or three-inch casting tape. Uh, I usually use two-inch casting tape. Um, you know, it's easy to work if it's a big foot, or if I want to add more bulk to it, I'll use I'll use number three. Put the cast on dry. In veterinary medicine, or when I was taught in veterinary school, you always wet the cast and put it on. In this particular case, and I'll tell you why in a minute, we put the cast on what we call dry. I start with the casting tape in the middle of the frog. That's where I have my finger and my thumb. I go around the perimeter of the foot. And as you go over the focal area of acrylic, in other words, the thicker area of acrylic at the heel, you'll see it permeate into the cast. And I'll go around the perimeter of the foot until I meet the other end, the middle of the frog. Now I have a, a base to start. Then I'll go you know, usually about half the thickness of the cast will go around the perimeter. I'll keep going around till I envelop the foot. If I want to have a little bit more surface or mass on the bottom, I'll do a couple rounds on the perimeter of the foot before I go upwards. I will leave usually about a half inch to three quarters of an inch below the hook wall. And then I'll go around, I'll work my way up to, to the coronary band until I have the whole foot enveloped. As I go around, I usually go half the thickness of the tape. It makes a nice, even thing. It gives an even thickness all the way up. And then once I have the foot enveloped, at the end of the cast, it'll be folded over on itself. So you have to, for some reason, they do it in veterinary cast as well, you have to open that area up so, in other words, it's flat against the wall. 
Immediately, I'll take, you have a sponge with some water there. Saturate the sponge and just let it go. Just wet the whole cast. In other words, you know, make sure it's nice and, and thoroughly, diffusely wet. And then we put it in some plastic wrap. We're going around the foot. The plastic wrap can be figurated and however you want to keep it on the foot, but you want to cover the whole cast with the uh, plastic wrap. The minute you have the plastic wrap on the foot, you want to put the foot on the ground and hopefully pick the other foot up just for, you know, a few seconds because the cast you have below the margin of the hoof wall, you want to fold it inwards and you want to form a nice flat surface, you know, on the bottom of the foot. We okay so far? Yeah, that's great. Okay. Let me go back one step there. And this might be a little hard to visualize. And I think Alicia here knows, probably saw me do it or, or knows the concept. When you're going or when you have the foot repaired and you're enveloping the foot with casting tape, for if you wanted to put a shoe on and you wanted a little bit more mass on the quarters, well, you would come around to, say, a toe quarter, and then you would stop, you would back the tape up, and you would fold it on itself, the, the length of the, of the back to the heel quarter, fold it forward again, fold it back, increasing the mass or the width of the cast as much as you feel necessary. Once you have acquired that desired width or, or thicker, now just take the cast around and envelop that area. And you already have, if you can visualize it, you have an increased mass on that side. You can do both quarters at the same time. Another area that is really, really helpful is horses that have crushed or underrun or damaged heels, whatever you want to call it, whatever the flavor of the day for that part of the anatomy. You can do the same thing with the heels where you can come around and you can stop just in front of the heel, go backwards, go forward, go backwards, and then leave a little bit more underneath the margin of the hoof wall so when the horse stands, steps down, he's going to have a little bit more thickness underneath the heel and on the side. So in other words, what you're doing is you're building up the mass of the heel using the hoof wall. Another place where this is really, really helpful in a lot of cases, when you take the shoes off and you have a distorted foot, you're going to have the hoof wall going to be prolapsed down below the surface of the wall. It's very hard to grow football on these horses because you don't have any lattice work or any framework. By building the heels up to the level of the frog, you're going to stimulate the football to grow down to the ground surface because you have the frog and the uh, hoof wall enhanced by your cast on the same ground surface of the foot or you know the, the, the same level. Does that kind of make sense to you, Alicia? Yeah, like the same plane. Uh, exactly. There you go. You should be on the set. <laughs> okay. Once we have done this, this is the cool step. We'll usually wrap them and then we'll go do the other foot while this one is curing. Just to go back just a little bit, the interesting thing of this process and the fellow who developed this, and it's so simple, he did research the cast material pretty good. And I'll give the guy all the credits to and because he deserves it the cast did you know he tried a lot of different casts and 
he probably did it because you know well you know i this this will be my product and god bless him you know for what he's what he's contributed the difference in this cast is if you think about the threads or the you can call it the weave whatever whatever one you want to call it it's the weave is wider than the 3m cast or the casts that are used in human medicine and this is to accommodate the acrylic in other words within the cast material in the first few rounds when you envelop the foot. The second thing is he had another 25% resin put in the cast. And the resin is what is the catalyst that makes that cast dry. And the purpose of both these being is that you are having the acrylic, in other words, that has permeate the cast that keeps it on the hook wall and the cast curing at the same time and neither one interferes with the other, which is absolutely amazing. If you have the foot enveloped in plastic wrap, put it on the, on the ground. And if you touch your plastic wrap and the cast is nice and warm or even on the other side of being warm, it's cured. So that part's finished. What we generally do is we go and do the other foot. I usually, myself, when I do it, I prepare both feet you know, with the rasp, you know, the trim part, I prepare both of them and then I'll cast one. And then I'll, once I'm finished, I'll go and I'll, I'll cast the other. So we'll cast the contralateral foot the same way. And when we're finished, that's on the ground. We'll go back to our original foot. It's cured by now. Take the plastic wrap off on the bottom of the foot. What we do is we follow and eat. There's so many different ways. And I've differed from Derek on this, on the way I do it. But what you do is you want to take the section of hoof cast that goes from the hoof wall of the heel across the, the base of the frog to the other side. That's what we want to take out because the cast is going to form part of the hoof wall, but it's, it's going to strengthen it. And it's going to give it stability, but it's not going to interfere with the physiological function with the foot. This is the whole crux of the thing. We want to remove that section. So there's a lot of ways you can do it. You can take a rasp and you can turn it on its edge. And following the, the frog sulci is going to be your guide. You know, before you cast the foot, you don't want to trim the frog, but you want to clean out the sulci on either side. So you can stick a rasp down in there and you can follow edge your rasp and the sulci and just Cut a little groove with the edge of your rasp into the cast. In other words, following your frog sulci. And then once you reach the perimeter, just take that and make it vertical. In other words, up to the hairline. That's where you're going to remove that area. You're going to do the same thing with the other side. You're going to create a groove with your rasp. And then you're going to uh, back to the perimeter or the perimeter around the base of the frog, the perimeter of your cast. And then you're going to go straight to the hairline. And when you take that out, you, all you're going to have is you're going to have your cast on either side of the heel. Another way of doing that is that you can take a magic marker, okay? But remember, magic markers come in, and they don't have to come in black colors. They can come because your cast is going to be black. Magic markers come in white. They come in yellow. They come in whatever you want. Take the frog sulci again and just draw a line on the cast material and then at the margin vertical up to the hairline so you can do it that way if you don't feel comfortable working with a rasp 
I'm going to do this with the nets because a lot of those, they're not comfortable with a rasp. You can use a hook knife to go through this. You can use a hacksaw blade. You can, you can use a wire. There's so many different things that you can do. I use an inch tapered tungsten bit that I put on the Dremel drill. Right at the end of the frog sulci at the beginning of the cast, I start with a little tapered end. I just put the tapered end right in the sulci and I just go backwards and it cuts like butter. Once I get to the perimeter, I just straighten the Dremel and I go right up to the hair. You can feel with the Dremel uh, when you've cut through the cast. You got to remember the joy of a tungsten bit is that if it, if it hits tissue and you generally won't hit we're talking about how would you say live tissue or, or tissue covering the frog or whatever it will not dig into it or will not penetrate it's amazing that way it'll clean up outer hook wall it'll clean up gas it'll clean up some soul but it won't go into tissue the tungsten particles doesn't work that way so you do that on either side and then just take a pair of pliers or a pair of hook pullers or whatever Put your one jaw underneath the base of the frog and just pull it off. It'll break right off there beautifully. Then with the foot in the air or between your legs in the farrier stance, whichever one you want, we just clean up the heel. And it just takes a few rubs on either side. And the cast, because of the acrylic back of the heel, it blends right into your heel. So now again, what you have is you have the cast applied to the outer hook wall and you have the, the frog open, so whenever the horse moves, you're using all the anatomical structures and the physiological function of that foot. The last one to do is you're going to take the foot out, and if you have gone much over the coronet with your cast, just put the foot on a uh, hoof stand, and I use a rasp, or I have even have a couple barn managers that are putting these on you know, on your jumpers, and you can take a rasp, and you can use the smooth side, and just go lightly, you'll see the cast material, because remember, there's no acrylic underneath, it'll just go down just as nice as you want, and blend with the area that has the acrylic, or I've taught my farm manager, they use a, a, a drum sander, that's again on a drum drill, and you just go around lightly at the coronary band, you can see where it just it, the excess cast that is not in contact with the acrylic will just flake off the there. So now you have a, a nice bead around the coronary band as well. This is important because, you know, obviously the horse uh, in what they do, being a horse, they're going to accumulate moisture in the foot, whether it's in stall, outside, or whatever. It's going to form uh, with the rest of the acrylic on the outer hook wall this border is going to form a barrier for moisture going in and out. Same way as the acrylic attached to the heels that's been sanded and smoothed up is going to uh, inhibit the moisture. That's one of the big things because nothing is foolproof. And if you have an environment such that the moisture uh, gets underneath there, you'll see over time the cast will lift uh, you know, off the foot versus one that uh, is kept a little bit dry. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And thank you, because you explained it really, really well. Um, and I've been so impressed with the comfort of horses um, in casts that I've used. Um, oh, absolutely. Yes. 
And a lot of what you said is really great advice for people who are looking to consider having their horse barefoot. And I was wondering if you had, um, I mean, you sort of already answered this question, but I was wondering if you had any last minute advice for owners thinking about transitioning to barefoot. Yeah, well, here's the deal in a nutshell. And I, and again, I would encourage it. Number one is that somebody has the ability to evaluate the structures. If this is a thoroughbred, you know, little tiny thoroughbred foot that has been destroyed over time or the racetrack has no digital cushion, no heel structures, you're going to battle. You're really going to battle. If you have a club foot that, you know, with a flexural deformity, you know what that means. That means the joints flex in a true club foot. You know, they're going to have all their load on the toe. They're not going to do as good. The sheared heel will fix itself up over time. It works wonderful in mismatched feet or, you know, the so-called high load that people call it. You trim each foot accordingly. The biggest thing, I and again, I think it's wonderful. I got two barns, horses are going barefoot. And, you know, this is not hearsay. I can send you the video one after another of these because they all send it back to me. And, Doc, I should have done this a year ago. <laughs> one of the interesting things that I've compared videos before from before and after. Number one, when the horse starts to compete again, the stride changes. The stride is longer than it was before. And you're gonna ask me why? I have no idea. Number two, you can watch these horses over a fence. These are all jumpers. You can watch these horses over a fence and you can look at the distance of the feet over top of the top rail. And there's a marked difference in the height of the feet above the rail. And I think this is just leverage on uh, the horseshoe. And most jumpers are going to be in steel, as you know. I think this is just a, it's a, the leverage of the horseshoe on the foot as the horse, you know, propels himself in the air. Wow. Yeah. I think this is really something. I don't have any way of proving it now. You know, you can't make measurements off a video, but we'll, we'll figure out a way. And they're all different horses. It's a stallion. Five-year-old just won a Grand Prix in, in Tennessee. And... And the manager said, the rider said, the manager is the rider. He says, I wasn't even asking this horse to, you know, you know, to come up. And it was toward the end. So, you know, when the horse would have a, just a little fatigue, the amount that the horse's front feet are above the top rail, amazing. Absolutely amazing. I'm, you know, I still get excited about what I do. Yeah. No, that's great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or you shouldn't be doing it, right? Yeah. Um, um, I think other than the foot structures is that somebody going into this has to have a, and I don't make a distinction be, between barefoot uh, trimmers and farriers. They're, you know, you're all trimming feet. So I just, I just say trimming feet. So I don't, I don't go down that particular road. You know, I work with both of them. I love both of them. The point being is that the client, when they're going into this, and it's a very hard thing to say because, you know, oh, this is the top barrier in the area right now or on the circuit or whatever, and, you know, he'll be doing my horse. No, they're probably the worst. Somebody has to go into this with understanding the process. Number two, understanding you're taking a foot that's been protected around the periphery for seven, eight years, ten years or whatever, and now you're taking that off and you're making whole foot weight-bearing, okay? Those tissues have to adapt. 
You can't take the horse's shoes off on Friday and say, hey, I'm going to go do a Grand Prix on Monday. It don't work. You have to have a transition period to do this properly. I don't even care if the horse has, you know, a foot that you want to take pictures of. The closest we have gotten is this mare is, is three weeks. She's just a little over three weeks and she, she won a Grand Prix the other day. Wow. Which I'll, I'll send you the video. Yeah, Wonderful. I love that. Yeah. So it usually takes a little bit long, but you have a good horse and you have him jumping well. Who, who wants to take that? You know, who wants to take that time? Oh, a couple of weeks. Are you kidding me, Doc? You're, you're nuts. I'm not going to do that. Okay, fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not your guy. I don't have a problem saying that. But if you're going to do that, you need to think about it. The next thing is you have to have a farrier that understands it. And the farrier, whether it's a trimmer or they're all, you're all farriers. You have to have a farrier that understands the process. You can't go in there with a knife. Just for an example, I have a client. I used to go do her horses. Then she spent the um, last winter in, in Europe. And she came back and she called and she said, you know, it's it's becoming very popular in Europe to, to have, have your horse bare. So she said, do you think my horse is still barefoot? And I know all the horses. I said, absolutely. Oh, she told me the power she was using. And actually, he's a friend of mine. He's a very good farrier. Would you tell him how to do it? I said, no. And she just silent. I said, no. I said, I'll tell you what. And I said, I'll, I'll speak to him. And if he's amenable, I'll come out and I'll do it with him. Anyway, I know the guy's a wonderful guy. He said, you know, Doc, I'd love to have you come out. You know, I'd, I'd be more happy to have beer with, with you when you finish and da-da-da. So anyway, I went out there. And we did the three horses. And I casted all three of them just to show him how to do it, just to make sure. Because I was in, there in Minneapolis and I'm in Virginia that everything went right. She called me about uh, a month later after the trip. She said, the horses are doing really nicely. So she called me the second time, second trim, and she's crying. And I said, you know, Josie, what's the matter? She says, all three of my horses are lame. So I said, okay, let's not get upset. Okay, send me, send me some pictures. Okay, so she sent me the pictures, and I don't need to, to look at them very long. He reverted right back to his farrier ways. Well, the sole was a little high. He took out a bar. He trimmed, he trimmed the feet. And... They were all sore. So all the work that was done for those first eight weeks was gone. They starting over. No, she's doing good now, but, you know, obviously they changed again, and she's actually doing them herself. But um, you have to have a farrier to understand it. And shaping versus trimming, it's a little bit unnatural to them. And even my guys have trouble with it. That, uh, you know, it's, you're using your rasp in a little different manner or different direction. So it takes you a little bit out of your comfort zone. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You know, all you need is a wire brush and a rasp. You trade your knife in for a wire brush, so you have to understand that. Now, the last thing is that, okay, Doc, now what are we going to do when we're on a grass surface like Hamptons or, you know, uh, Spruce Meadows or some of those places like that? Well, that's not a problem either. We have taken, we, we take the horse's feet. We don't trim we don't touch them, but we fitted shoes to them. And we use it. We have just been doing them in the front. We haven't done them in the back because usually the front is where they're slipping. They don't slip that much in the back, believe it or not. And the back will form a nice cup in the bottom of the foot before, I mean, before you can back rise. And, that is, and that's half of, the, half of the traction. So what we do is we fit shoes. And 
we we will put shoes on the front of the horses. We we attach them with two nails on each side. Let them do their course, okay. And as soon as they're finished their course, we take the shoes off. But we never touch the feet. So all you've done is you put two nail holes on either side of a better structure. Who cares? So that's the way we got around that part. Yeah. So I don't know what else to tell you, my girl. Is there? Uh, no, I think that's great. And actually, my uh, my recording device is, is telling me it has low battery, so I probably should wrap up. But this has been fantastic, and I really appreciate it. I, I I think that it's it's amazing that you're willing to share your knowledge on the subject and the practice that you've done and the success that you've seen. And I think it's it's great that others can hear about it and hopefully try it from themselves. Well, Give it some thought. Look up that paper. It's called the Barefoot Methodology for the Equine Practitioner. Uh, it's on. You've seen my website. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's down in the paper section. I think around 2017, somewhere in there, we published it. Was on. Most of my horses are going to be on at least 60 or 70 cases because that way you get a trend. I'm not a researcher. I work on clinical stuff. So, you know, I got to have a. You know, I got to have numbers rather than some kind of hypothesis of an experiment or that sort of thing yeah well um thanks again and i hope you have a great rest of your day i will thanks a million bye-bye bye i always say that i'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person and chances are if you're listening to a hoof care podcast you are too so we should probably be friends feel free to find me on facebook or email me at the humble at gmail.com